How's everyone going? It's sounding a little bit quiet this morning. Is it the winter blues? Well, to kick things off, I have got a bit of a quiz. Um, so maybe we can show the first slide with just the four words. So they're faith, grace, love, and body. We're looking into the book of Ephesians, and uh, last week we started with chapter one. Today we're going to be in chapter two. Uh, I can't promise that we'll be doing one chapter a week. Maybe some of them are going to be a bit bigger and longer. But these four words represent four themes that are all uh, kind of important in the book of Ephesians. So I want you to guess which one of these words appears the most in the book of Ephesians. All right? You have to guess. If you get it right, you get first dips at morning tea. If you get it wrong, um, you, you have to leave straight away. No, no, I'm totally joking. This is a bit of fun just to get you guys moving. Who thinks uh, faith appears the most in the book of Ephesians? No one. Um, grace. Okay, there's a few. Love. Love has a couple more. And body. Oh, okay. I didn't think that this would be so even. Uh, but love appears the most in the book of Ephesians with 19 <laughs> times. 19. Uh, grace appears 12 times, so not far behind. Faith and body each appear 10 times. Uh, the way, uh, one of the things about this is that love, as much as a lot of it talks about God's love for us, uh, the book of Ephesians, as we will cover, also uh, talks a lot about us loving each other. And so that probably uh, then makes up a lot more of the occasions for Paul to use the word love. Uh, but grace appears the second most times in, the book, uh, in this book, and also the second most times of all of Paul's epistles, uh, or letters as we call them. And so Romans has the most times that grace appears, uh, but Romans is 16 chapters long as opposed to Ephesians, which is six chapters long. And so it has led some scholars to call the book of Ephesians um, the epistle of grace. And that's where some people are like really confident. And I was like, grace! I know Ephesians, it's all about grace! Um, Yes and no, uh, but we are going to cover that a lot more today, actually. In chapter 2, uh, the instances of grace appearing and some really key verses about grace appears in this chapter, and so we're going to look into it. Uh, but I want to give you one piece of um, important note. One important note, sorry. One important note, sorry, my brain's still warming up as well. Uh, one important note when you read through the book of Ephesians. Uh, for us in English, when we use the word you, we can mean it individual, as an individual or as a collective. So I can say you, Georgia. I can also mean you, Lift Church. Um, in America, they call it y'all, you all. <laughs> Um, in the Greek, though, there are two different words that are used uh, to reference you, uh, the collective and the individual usage of the word you. When it comes to the book of Ephesians, every single time you read the English word you, do you think it's the individual or the collective? It is always, always the collective. Okay, And so whenever we read you, 
please make sure, uh, we, because sometimes as modern day English speaking Christians, we read every time you comes up, we, and any time you comes up and is a nice you, we mean, oh, God's talking to me directly and me alone. And um, no, Paul didn't write to you specifically. He didn't even know you. And um, sometimes I don't know if he wants it. No, I'm joking. I'm sure that he would love to know you guys. You guys are a great bunch. Uh, but it's really important when we read today's passages that when we read you, remember that it was meant to be read to a collective group of people. Okay? And that's going to be really important for us. Let's kick off Ephesians 2, uh, verse 1. It says, As for you, all y'all. Okay? In fact, when I was listening to one of the theologians who is American, he said, just change it to y'all. As for y'all, y'all were dead in your, y'all's trans... I don't know, let's not do that. You get the meaning. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. All right, so that's the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And honestly, when I read, I've read this many times, and I often would gloss over this a little bit, but in studying about it, it's actually quite an important thing for us to think about because we bring our conception of how things work into the Bible quite often, and we then miss what it is trying to tell us. And so Paul says that we were dead in our transgressions because we were following the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. I'm reading an NIV translation. Whatever translation that you have, uh, you will read something about some kind of powerful uh, authoritative being that looks after or has rule over the air. And when you see the word air, it doesn't mean air up there. It actually just means air, uh, the atmosphere that we live in, which is supposed to kind of just be a, a sense of like he's ruling here, the kingdom, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What comes to mind when you think of the ruler of the kingdom of the air? For many of us, we will think of Satan, probably right. Um, it, it seems to be what Paul is talking about, Satan. But how do you conceive of Satan? How do you conceive of the power of Satan? Because Paul said that he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The air that we're breathing right here, right here now. The ruler of the kingdom of the air. Sounds kind of powerful, doesn't he? What's your picture? What, what comes to mind? What, what, what image, what does your imagination go to when you think about the fact that Paul said that we used to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Does it sound like Satan has got you pinned down? Does it sound like Satan has got this power over you, that he's got this authority over you? Because honestly, if I kind of read this, it sounds that way. It sounds like Satan had this authority and power over me, and I had no choice but to follow along. 
I want to point out uh, what, what I learned this week, which is really interesting. First, we've got to go back to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 21, I believe. And this is where Paul was talking about Jesus and what Jesus is, uh, where, what, what he's kind of doing right now, if you, if you will. And he says this, I'm paraphrasing a little bit at the start. It says, Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So clearly, Paul says that Christ is far above all powers, right? Now, in the Greek, something that is really interesting is that the words far above all rule and authority are actually the same Greek derivative words for ruler and kingdom of the air. Same words. I didn't note them down, and I'm not going to try to say them because I'm not Greek, as you can see by my eyes. Um, but, G, but, but Paul, literally, just, if you're reading this as a letter straight through, you don't stop at the end of chapter one and say, I'm going to stop here for today because I've done my one chapter for the day, right? You read through the whole letter and you're reading it in Greek. You've just read, literally, verse 21 is here. Verse, uh, the, next, the next time those words appears right there, you would see that Paul is using very similar words. And so he says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority. And then he goes on to say that there is this ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who do you think is more powerful? Jesus, right? Yeah, that, that was an easy one. If you got that wrong, no morning tea for you. Um, it, it, Jesus, Paul was not trying to paint us a picture of Satan being powerful as much as he was already saying Jesus is far more powerful. So why did he write then about this ruler of the kingdom of the air? And why does he talk about this death? How did that all happen? How did Satan have any power on this earth? How did he become the ruler of the kingdom of the air? And yes, some people might go all the way back to Genesis and talk about all those things. But there was something interesting that I found. Whenever uh, uh, Satan is attributed with any power and authority in the Bible it is always very quickly followed by a description of human structures of governance or, or, or human ruler. So there'll be some description of Satan and a ruler or Satan and a government. And what seems to be the case is that there never is a direct power in the Bible, or, or sometimes there are, but more, more, more often than not, there isn't a direct authority that Satan exerts on people. I want that to be really clear, because today we're not going to talk about exorcism. You ain't going to have your head flying around in circles, decapitated from your body, and then landing back in a nice way. It is not happening. We are not performing exorcism. We do not use holy water here. We just use Kensington PCYC water, which is perfectly fine for drinking, but not casting out demons. But there is no sense that the enemy takes over us or overpowers us. And in fact, when you look at how it is written in Ephesians 2 verse 2, it says, in which you used to live when you 
follow in the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It uses the word followed. Followed. Not submitted, not surrendered, not overpowered, not made a slave to. It says followed. You see, what seems to be the biblical narrative when it comes to Satan's power is very much that Satan has got influence when we give him influence. Satan has power when we give him power, when we follow according to his ways. Satan is known as the father of lies. He lies to us and paints a picture of what following him will lead to. And then we go, oh, that actually looks quite good. And then when we follow that, then we end up uh, uh, resulting in being uh, uh, under his power. And, and know what it says here is when we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, it then says the spirit who is now at work who are, uh, in those who are disobedient. His spirit or his being, his, his work really starts when we say, I'm going to follow you. And this is a real alarming thing that we need to understand. Satan has power when we give him power. Satan has authority when we give him authority. And then he begins to work in us. And when you read all the letters that Paul writes in particular, I find it really interesting that the more we follow Satan, the more we end up trying to follow the desires of this world. And then all of those uh, issues then come up. But there's something really interesting here as well. I was reading from the NIV, as I said. NIV is... Um, is called a dynamic translation. Instead of following the original Greek word for word and translating that into uh, the closest English word, it tries to follow more thought to thought. Okay, And so sometimes the way the NIV is translated is not using the original Greek words. Now, if you read a more direct or literal translation like the ESV, you will see in verse... Um, in verse 2, instead of it saying, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, it says, uh, the spirit who is now at work in the children of disobedience. It says, the children of disobedience. And it's kind of like, oh, that sounds a little bit off, right? We'll come back to that. And then on top of that, if you're reading ESV, it will say in verse 3, and you're not going to like this, uh, but it says, at, uh, All of us who lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we are children of wrath. Children of wrath. Children of disobedience and children of wrath. Now, if you're reading those things, it kind of doesn't sound very nice, right? Who would like to be a child of disobedience? I know my child is not very obedient, and so I know that a child of disobedience is going to be absolutely terrible. Um, but what we are dealing with here is a figure of speech. And what we need to understand about this figure of speech, I'm spending a lot of time on these first three verses because I think it's important for us to understand uh, the processes that we are engaged in and we necessarily have to involve ourselves with on this, in, in this life that we have. Now, a child of disobedience or ch uh, being children of disobedience, in the Bible, it doesn't mean a literal child. In the Bible, it uses language like child of or son of, uh, of a group in particular. It, 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 lead, it, it represents membership. Okay? So in the Old Testament, for example, you'll read some accounts of uh, people who were sons of the prophets, right? They're not just saying that the whole bunch of them were all 
uh, prophet's kids. A whole bunch of PKs running around. Oh, they are the sons of the prophets, you know? Like, they know what it's like to be a prophet because their parents were prophets and their parents' parents were prophets. No, no, no. They're not talking about literal sons of prophets. They're talking about people who have chosen uh, to, to become uh, a part of the group of prophets to learn how they live, to, to, um, to, to learn their way of life, their lifestyle, their practices, and their disciplines, so embedding themselves into the group that they look like the sons of that group. In the same way, when Paul is using this language of children of disobedience, he's saying that uh, there are people, all of us actually, who have so chosen to become a part of this group of people that are disobedient. Disobedient to what? Disobedient to God's will. And we live against God's will so much so that we look like, we feel like, we are like their children. Make sense? So that is in verse 2, it's saying that we are children of disobedience. We need to understand that that is not a, uh, about our nature, that is not about our predisposition, it is about the fact that we have chosen to live in the way that is like. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, those children of disobedience are children of wrath. In the NIV, is not very helpful as well because it says, literally, it says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. And so it, it scares people, right? You think you're, you're, God's saying that you are of, by nature, He created you to be deserving of death? That's kind of a bit off, doesn't it? But what we need to understand is, again, using the word children of wrath, what Paul is describing is not that you are of natural uh, creation, supposedly deserving of death or wrath, but more that because we are children of disobedience, so following and giving our membership to this group, that the natural outcome of being a part of this group is wrath. Let me put it to you this way. I've, uh, a few years ago, I bought a few shares. And, um, and by buying these shares, I have become a member uh, of some of these companies that I I'm technically a part owner of, and I'm not going to tell you any of the shares because in case I get in trouble for saying anything, but I bought uh, uh, my membership into these shares. And what then happens is that when I have bought these shares, when this company does well, I do well. When this company does terribly, I do terribly. I am a child of that company using biblical language. So am I a child of prosperity or am I a child of bankruptcy? It's kind of tied to these companies. And that's why when I first bought those shares, the advice that I was reading was that you do your research behind those shares, those companies. Are they companies that are going to last for two years? Are they just a, a, a jack-in-the-box that just popped up and they're going to do really well for now? Or they have a longevity? Are they ethical? Uh, do you believe in the values that this company is built upon? I did all those research because I knew that I was signing up to be a member of that company. I was actually supporting whatever happens to this company. In the same way, that's the language that Paul is using here. That all of us, when we, uh, uh, we gave our membership to uh, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, of how he rules the world, our thinking, our lifestyle, our perspective is necessarily tied into how the enemy views the world. 
That is what Paul is saying. And if you follow that track, then you will find yourself deserving whatever that group membership deserves. That is what Paul is saying. It's a good thing that God did something about that. Verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not by yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Whoa, grace! So great, isn't it? And we need to understand, as I already preempted right at the start, it doesn't say grace for you as an individual. But it says you in terms of a collective. And I think that that's very important. I think it's important because when we think that it's solely through the eyes of an individualistic culture, then we kind of compare, how much was I really following the enemy? How much grace do I personally need? How much a child of wrath was I really? Because you know what? I wasn't like doing all that stuff. And so because I didn't do all of that stuff, I accept some of God's grace because that's all that I need. Does that make sense? Now, the shares that I bought, right, doesn't make me a deciding voter in any of the companies I bought into. No. I have nothing. I have not zero say. I have maybe 0.0001% say in some of these companies. I'm not dabbling that much into what they do. Am I telling the director how to do things in that company? Am I really at fault if anything happens in that company? If they choose to do unethical investments, if they choose to do something really terrible, I'm not really at fault, right? But if what they do causes the company to collapse, I'm still going to have the consequence of that because I have chosen to be a member of that group. And so when we understand that Paul is not talking about you individualistically, about what you used to do and where you are now because of Christ, it is not comparing how much sin you did versus how much grace God is giving to you. It's saying that we were members of a group of people known as human beings who are so disobedient to God. We have chosen that membership and everything that was due to that group. We were a part of. And God did not need to do anything about this group of people. We can read about that in Genesis when God decided to reset and redo through the flood. He didn't need to deal with this group. You didn't do anything to stand out from that group and say, oh, you know what? You actually don't really belong there. You're actually in my good books. Or you, you know what? You're not that bad. You're in the neutral books. You can go either way. It's all good. No, no. He looks at all of humanity and he says all of humanity have fallen short. All of humanity are in this category. 
But God didn't say, wipe them out. God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to choose to show grace. I'm going to choose to show grace. I'm going to die on the cross so that I'm forming a new group that you all get to be a part of. One of the things that we need to understand is that when we think about grace individualistically, we think about our choice a lot. When you talk to people from a different culture, especially a more collectivistic culture, you will find that a lot of people in that category will say that, no, no, I don't have that choice. This is, I need to do this for my family, I need to do this for my group, I don't have a choice. And then us Australians who are so enlightened, right, we'll go, no, you have a choice, you can do whatever you want to do. Anyone kind of understand what I'm saying there? When we think about that in terms of sin, in terms of all that has gone before us in our own lives, we think about the choices that we want to make. But when we understand this whole idea of the collective, the group membership that we come from, we see that grace was given to a collective and we are simply not choosing but responding to God's grace. God's grace is not something that we should be thinking about in terms of choosing. We should be thinking about it in terms of responding. That is a hugely different kind of thinking. Even for myself, when I was doing this research and looking into this, it kind of scared me that sometimes I take God's grace for granted by talking about our choice. It's not a choice. And you know why there was a choice? Because I look at myself and I thought I wasn't that bad a person. But when I understand this idea that, no, 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 God wasn't looking at each individual and counting them individually and going, you're not that bad, I give you 30% grace, 40% grace. Oh, you're really good, 2% grace. You're terrible, 80% grace. Oh, you really need grace. 80. No, he looked at a whole group, you need grace. I've given you grace. My choice is not to choose how much grace I receive, it's to respond to God and say, I, I need grace. Doesn't matter whether it was a 2% or, no, 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 there's no judgment or, or evaluation point here. It is just simply, I need grace. I need grace. That's the Christian message that we should come back to. It's not how much grace, it's I need grace. It's not what I deserve or what I have done, it's I need grace. And that's why we use these beautiful verses so often. It says, you have been saved, uh, is by grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that you can't boast. Beautiful words. However, we come to verse 10, and it feels like we hit a bit of a whiplash moment, because Paul then goes on to write, for we are God's handiwork. Woohoo! Really nice, right? And it says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Literally, one verse ago, Paul was saying that it is by grace, not by works. Not by works, so no one can boast, and you have been created to do good works. So Paul, do I work or do I not work? What are you trying to say here? Am I supposed to be doing anything? You know, I sometimes read the Bible and I go, I don't know what you want me to do, God. It's really confusing. But the key phrase here is in Christ. 
created in Christ. Because we see our lives in such a linear fashion that we, 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 we get stuck in seeing things from our point of view. And what Paul is saying here is that when, he, when God showed His grace, He created us new to be part of this new group. And a part of this new group created in Christ, new creation, right? This new creation has a new nature. And this new nature is to do good works. A part of this new nature that God has given to us is to do good works. How do we know that we are a group member of this new creation is that we are compelled to do good works. In the same analogy, when I bought membership into this group, how do I know that I'm part of this group? I got a ton of emails about all these AGMs I never wanted to attend, but I still got the emails. It informed me that I was part of the group, right? And so now the email is God saying, now that you have received grace, now that you're part of this new group, do good works. What good works are you going to do today? Because that's what you have been created to do now in this new creation. So it is by grace that we were removed from our old group membership. It is by grace that we are given a new group membership. And it is by grace that we have this new nature. And this new nature does good works. Good works doesn't get you from there to here. Good works is because we are here. So that's what Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 uh, um, culminates in. This idea that we've got this new group membership. Now, as we go on to the next half, I spend a lot of time there because it's interesting because what Paul has then done in writing verse 11 uh, to 22 is that he repeats the content of the first 10 verses but uses a different analogy. All right, so we're going to read the second half and many of us, when we read it, I myself included, I kind of dismissed it because I don't feel like I'm a Jew or a Gentile. Let's be honest, if you read chapter 2, the second half is all about Jews and Gentiles and the barrier between the Jews and Gentiles, and we're like, oh, what has that got to do with anything? Well, Paul is actually using another analogy, which is an important perspective, and it enforces this idea of group membership. So let's read this. It says, therefore, remember that uh, formerly you who are Gentiles, Gentiles are simply means non-Jews, uh, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. I don't know if anyone wants to call themselves, I am the circumcision. I was talking to my nephew last night. He loves footy. I said, do you have a nickname? He says, I am the dominator. And I was like, oh my gosh, your nickname on the footy field is the dominator? Like, how does it even work? It's like, pass it to the dominator. I'm like, come on, that's way too long. It's like, I don't get called that on the field. It's just off field. It's a nickname I've held since year three. And it was just really cute, right? But who wants to call themselves the circumcision? Pass the ball to the circumcision. Anyway, hilarious. Who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. So Paul is actually referencing the idea that there is this division between Jews and Gentiles, but he understands that this division is actually quite a human division. That's what he was saying there, but he wants to tap into the analogy, okay? And so he goes on to say, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in, in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. What he's saying here is that at that time of writing, it wasn't known as Christianity. 
Remember, it was known as the way, a sect of Judaism, sometimes even a cult of Judaism. And everyone in the ancient world knew that Jews were pretty tight about group membership. If you want to be a Jew, there's all of these things that are included. And so when these people, when Paul started to bring the gospel and said, the Jewish Jesus who is inviting you into this new membership in this life with Christ, the Gentile people, the church in Ephesus would automatically be thinking, but I'm a Gentile. This is not how this group membership works. This is not how it's supposed to be. I am separate. I do not get the covenants because the covenants were made to Israel. I do not get hope because hope only comes through God, who is the God of Israel alone. And that's what they were thinking. And they were thinking the one way that the Israelites said that you can become uh, a, part of, a part of us is to get circumcised. <laughs> it's just kind of like, oh... Do I want hope and life eternal? Do I want to get a circumcision? Hmm. It was kind of a, yeah, it was one of those moments, and Paul actually spends a lot of letters talking about this issue, uh, but this is what was going on. So they were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in heaven, foreigners to the covenant, covenants of promise without hope, without God. That's what it would have felt like when you heard this Jewish sect talking about Jesus, and you go, man, this God is amazing. But group membership is impossible. That's what it would have been like. And so Paul says, doesn't it sound a lot like the first 10 verses about how we were dead in our sin following the, the king, rule of the kingdom of the air? Sounds the same, doesn't it? In verse 13 that we have, the flip over. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace which has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What is this barrier, this dividing wall of hostility? Most theologians think that it is the Torah. It is the law that the Israelites were following. Because when you followed the Torah, which was given to the people by Moses, in particular through um, the setting up of the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai, sorry, I'm going through a lot of this quite quickly, uh, but when that was given, it set Israel apart as a nation, and it therefore divided them away from the other nations. For example, when I came to Australia, I had Singapore citizenship still. I was only a migrant and a temporary resident in this land. I was technically not Australian, and so I did not receive the benefits of being Australian. I had to pay international student fees. I had to do all of those things. Why? I was in the land. Yes, but my citizenship was still Singaporean. And if I wanted to have Australian citizenship, I needed to get rid of my Singapore citizenship because you're technically not allowed dual citizenship. At least Singapore doesn't allow it. And so there was all this stuff that I had to go through, um, meeting all the criteria in order to become Australian. And so there is this difference, there is this separation. If I'm Singaporean, I cannot be Australian. If I am Gentile, I cannot be Jewish. And how it was set up is because the Mosaic covenant said, if I follow these laws, which include things like the circumcision, etc., then I'm going to be Jewish. And so there was this dividing wall, this dividing wall. There was this difference in culture, difference in governance that divided the Jews from the Gentiles. And then in verse 15, it says, uh, it continues, 
by setting aside in his flesh, his being Jesus, the law with his commands and regulations. And so what it says, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus got rid of the dividing wall of hostility. And how do we know that he did that? Because in Matthew 5 verse 17, I believe, yes, Matthew 5 verse 17, Jesus says that he fulfills the law. And what does he do by fulfilling the law? He says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. It's interesting that Paul talks about Jesus as our peace, in particular with group membership. I want you to think about this. The most unpeaceful times in your life will be to do with people, differences in thinking, differences in opinion, differences in perspective. God is our peace because He is here to help us to learn how not to be at war with people. <laughs> That's what He's saying here. It's kind of cool. And then He says, um, He came, verse 17, He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. So here we go, in this second half, Paul's using the analogy of Gentiles and Jews and how Jesus made them one humanity. One. One. He brought peace by releasing, by destroying that barrier that made this differentiation and says we are all to come together. We all have access to the Father by one Spirit. So what does this mean? Verse 19. Consequently, very important word because it means because of this new one humanity, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Now, remember, when we talked about Ephesus, what did we say? When you thought about Ephesus, you thought about the temple of Artemis. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That was the temple. Paul was not writing to Jewish people. He was writing to Ephesians. And when he uses the analogy of the temple, I believe that they would have thought about this temple and not the temple that we keep talking about that is in Jerusalem. And so he's telling these people uh, who are uh, sidelined because of their belief in Jesus, remember, they're not allowed to be part of the trade guilds, not allowed access to the bank in Ephesus, they're not allowed the social and the economic uh, organization that is based in this temple they are now sidelined and they feel small, right? Or they would feel that you would assume that they would feel small. And then what does Paul say? When, when Jesus has brought about this new humanity, he's building an even more magnificent temple. He's building something that is so much bigger, majestic, and powerful. And what is he going to be building it with? You and me. This is, this is temporary. This is earthly. This was going to be destroyed and has been destroyed. 
In fact, when I mentioned this temple, most of us didn't even know it existed. It was an ancient wonder of the world. And after its destruction, people forgot that it even existed. But the body of Christ continues to grow today. Because God is not building with, with, with physical materials, but He's building with people, with souls, into a temple that is going to be greater. And so that was an encouragement to the local church in Ephesus. You're not small, you're not sightline. You might not see it, but you're part of something so much bigger. This is part of the encouragement that He was giving to them. But I also want to point out, it says, In Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling, one dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. You know, there is this common thought, and I believe that there is merit to it, that all of us are temples of the Holy Spirit. Each of us individually as a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in me. However, in the ancient world, in Paul's writing, do you hear this? We're not all meant to be temples having our own little temple parties. We're not meant to have, oh, I'm having my temple festival today. No, no, no. We are one temple. We are a brick. You are a brick. Turn to someone next to you and say, you're a brick. You're a brick. You're not a temple. You're a brick. Can you imagine? I love this wall. I love the pattern. Imagine yourself as one of those, right? Imagine you get taken out of this wall. Does this building still exist? Yes, maybe we have to patch up that hole, but this building, this facility will still exist. But you as a brick, you get cast aside. Can you give shelter to anyone, you brick? Can you give anyone stability and comfort? Can you protect anyone? Are you going to be safe and steady and secure? Or are you movable? throwable, discardable. Where we think that I am a temple of the Holy Spirit, I think like God values me so much, and He does. But He also values you as part of something bigger. And the, the implication for us, I believe, in this chapter is that when we take an individualistic view of God's grace and what He's doing for me, we just keep wondering about when God's going to make that miracle happen for me because I'm the most important person on the world. But when we understand that we were part of a group that deserved death, that God's brought us into a new group, He didn't need to, but He formed a new group, a group for losers that He didn't have to love, but He did. And then he set you up and he says, you, you guys are going to be my temple together. And in our modern days, when we stop being a temple together, we stop representing Christ and what he's trying to do. He's not trying to set up individual superhumans. He's trying to set up a temple where his Holy Spirit can dwell. And so what are the implications? The implications of this are these. What does it mean? It means that we reflect God best when we're living together according to His plan. Your individual brick-like behavior is very useful in the context of a building. 
is very useless in the context of a tip. It means that we carry out God's plan better when we're together. We get so caught up in my individual plan and what God's doing in my life. I need to set up all my ducks in order. God's saying, get rid of your ducks. Start being part of the temple. I'm not saying that there's no wisdom to life. I'm not saying that you don't need to deal with certain things. You'll be the best brick you can be. But your brick is much more useful in the body, in the temple, than by itself. And you trying to sort things out outside of the walls outside of the body of Christ, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help anyone. It means that my mission, my purpose, necessarily involves the corporate church. The corporate church. God's not going to give you a mission for yourself that disregards the corporate church. And by corporate church, I mean the global overarching church, but I also believe that is best expressed in local churches. You can't serve the global church without serving a local body. That's my belief. Because how do you know how well you're fitting with someone across the other side of the planet? How do you know whether you're living in unity, in peace with one another when you're never around the body of Christ? Technology gives us this sense that we can be separate and still be functioning well. But no, no, no. We need to be attached. We learn best. We grow best. We heal best. These are psychological principles in community. And God designed this new humanity in this way. If He just needed you to be a good individual, He would save you and then pop you off to some other world but you didn't need to live with me and with each other. You know, if, I, if, God, if God was so individualistic, then he wouldn't help us grow through using other people. One of the greatest growth cycles in my life has, beca- has been because I've become a dad, where I've been face to face with a terror <laughs> and with a joy and with a blessing, but also sometimes a terror. And sometimes that reflects on the black stuff inside of me. Like this morning, he woke up at 5 a.m., an hour and a half before he was meant to, screaming his little head off in the cot and not wanting to be settled. And I was like, I've got to preach, Sam. God's got a mission for your dad. You go back to sleep because he needs to preach. Did Sam listen? No, because that's life. And I'm learning. God doesn't need me to have eight hours of sleep to use me. Sometimes he wants me to be a dad. And sometimes he wants us, no, all the time, he wants us to be part of the body. Your individual mission is important, but it necessarily involves the corporate church. God's blessing also flows best when we are part of this in crowd. When there's unity and when there's peace among us, that's when God's blessing flows. Too many of us believe we can be strong by ourselves outside of these walls. 
Where do you think your support comes from? It comes from the Lord who has given you a church to be a part of. They say, God, solve all my problems. And he puts you in church with a bunch of people that you're like, oh, I have to open up to these guys. I have to ask for help. Shouldn't they know they're Christians, right? I have to be vulnerable and open up. I have to take their quirks and their annoying behaviors. Yes, because that's where the blessing flows. You know, I find it interesting, and I'm not going to look at anyone. I'm looking at the basketball hoop. I've done this a few weeks ago. But I find it interesting that sometimes some of us, we go through difficult situations in our workplace and in our families, and we choose to take Sunday off rather than take work off where you have four weeks, maybe three, of paid leave. You're supposed to take time off your work to get rest. And you take time off God and your church family in order to get rest. Why do you think you're not rested? Why do you think you're not encouraged? Why do you think you're not uplifted? Why do you think you're not growing? Because you have removed yourself from the walls of the temple. We need to get back to a place where we understand the value of this. The Ephesians had a physical representation of what is possible when people come together. We need to have very visible physical representations of what the church is meant to be like when we're living together. If I can get Sarah up this morning, we're going to do communion, and we're going to do communion differently this morning. Some of you might be worried about COVID. You can choose not to do this, and that's completely fine. But what we're going to do is that I've prepared a loaf of bread at the back, and I want you to get into groups of maybe three, five people. So send a couple of people to the back, grab a slice of bread, grab some of the cups, for your group, bring it back, and you're going to do communion together. Because sometimes I realize that when we do communion, you're thinking about yourself and God. And it's beautiful, it's necessary. But I think sometimes it's necessary to look other human beings in the eye and say, you're my tribe, you're my people. I'm here with you, for you. And you're meant to be here for me. And some of us need to know what it's like to have another human being look you in the eye and say, you're welcome here. You belong here. We belong together. We represent a global church. We are a local context. But we need those bonds in order that we can be strong, in order that we can thrive, in order that we can flourish this is where God's blessing flows. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.